This week's episode of the Nerdist Writers Panel is brought to you by T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours, starting at midnight each day. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury adds more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. But you should really just buy them the first time around. So visit T-Fury every day and then get a shirt because it's gone after 24 hours. T-Fury shirts cover all of your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Daily. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you miss the day's shirt by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel. This is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. Uh, I myself am a TV writer. I've written for the shows Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working on a DreamWorks animated program, which I will tell you more about when I'm allowed to, but it's a lot of fun. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on the Nerdist Network, monthly at Largo, and touring all over the country uh, in 2014. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. We're hello. here. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> uh, we got the Nerdist Writers Panel in the studio uh, with Matt Walsh. Uh, thanks for being here, Matt. Uh, I'm excited. I've been here uh, many times before up here in the little uh, attic here at the <laughs> comic the book store, but I don't think I've been on your show yet, Ben. I've you done have a couple not. shows here. Oh, you'd remember. Uh, I would remember. I would remember. And it feels familiar, though. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you for being here, Matt. Um, before anything, let us talk about this Indiegogo uh, campaign <laughs> that is going on uh, to fund. It's really just funding post-production on this movie, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, tell us about the movie. And then I, I really want to hear about uh, kind of the process of putting this thing together. But the campaign itself sure. is a full-time job, as I know. It is. Um, so I am doing an Indiegogo campaign for an improvised movie that I directed called A Better You. It's my second improvised movie. And we have one scene left to shoot, and then we have a bunch of music to purchase and uh, color correct, Foley, ADR, uh, various deliverables. They call them in the business. And our goal is $52,000 and $52,650. Okay. And uh, I sort of dreaded going into the world of crowdfunding, but I happened upon uh, – at Sundance, I was there for a movie, and I ran into some people. We were having pizza at 2 in the morning, and they just happened to work for Indiegogo. And <laughs> they sort of made it a little uh, easier to understand. And so the approach to the campaign is just to make it a little f- uh, friendlier and funnier. And I think it's a modest amount of money. 
It's and, very reasonable. Yeah, it's a reasonable amount of money. And, and the goals are well laid out, too, yeah. I will say. Like, it's, it's clear. It's all very practical. Yes. It's, I, I need this to finish this movie, which yes. don't you want to see? <laughs> yes, it's a funny movie, and uh, we're rewarding people with various things. And every day I'm releasing a life hack video for free. Mm-hmm. Just go to the website, and you get a free life hack. So that's been fun. And that's sort of been the hardest part is to keep uh, finding people who will give me good life hacks. So, Good luck. Yeah, thank you. Um, tell people where they can, how they can access the Indiegogo. Go to the go to indiegogo.com and search a better you. I think okay. that's the simplest way to find it. And then various uh, my Twitter feed. I'm probably dropping something every other day about it. Yes, tell them where to find you on Twitter, Mr. Matt Walsh. Okay, so yeah, you'll you'll find stuff on there. Yeah, um, and it's a cool project. It's a cool film. Um, and it's as you said, an improvised film. Yeah. Um, but you, you wrote this really interesting piece about, you know, it's an improvised film, but that doesn't mean we just show up and try to make each other laugh because then you wind up with a movie with no plot. Correct. Um, so tell me a little bit about putting the plot together and how you broke it up so that there were, you know, scenes to improvise and goals within those scenes. So I wrote the story with, uh, Brian Husky, who's also the main character in our movie. And having him on set every day is basically having your co-writer inside the scene. So that's really valuable. So that's one thing if you're considering doing something is have somebody who wrote it inside the movie. It's really valuable. Yeah. Uh, and then as far as the structure island, we took like a year, year and a half. We're both busy. And we ended up with 50 to 55 scenes. And it's sort of a classic arc. We follow one character and he's losing his uh, wife and he's a hypnotist and uh, he can cure everyone but himself. And then you see him sort of strip away this persona that he's become. He, he, I think he fancies himself a bit like Anthony Robbins, like a guru who can cure everyone. But he's lost touch with his family, and he's, he could lose them. And that's the thing that's sort of uh, perhaps the inciting incident in writer's term that makes him like get a little nervous for change or mm-hmm. possibly he could change. And then he meets, uh, befriends a guy, Horatio Sands, who's sort of basically a, uh, a shiftless laborer who uh, hangs out at parking lots and says, hey, I'll pull that dent out of your car for 50 bucks. And that guy, Horatio's character, sort of teaches Ron, unknown wittingly, to sort of be real and strip away this facade he's fallen into and is stuck in. And then there's a little bit of love interest played by Aaron Hayes and a ton of funny people who come in and out. So uh, just for bit parts in the mm-hmm. therapy. And so the the structure of the story was basically um, everything that a writing basically outlining screenplay would entail you you find your character you find what's funny about him you kind of know where it's headed is he going to succeed is he not going to succeed how big will it be and then the tone because it's a smaller movie it's not like a there aren't a lot of huge set pieces it's smaller in tone Mm -hmm. and uh it's just sort of swimming through each event and then uh if there's a scene heading that uh margo asked for a divorce that's his wife then beneath that scene heading, there's probably three paragraphs of description, what's happening, uh, his reaction. There could be sample dialogue in there. Wow. And uh, then you move on to the next scene. So basically what you want to make sure in, under each heading is sort of the emotional state at the beginning and the end. You kind of know what happened before. Various characters' entrance and exits if there's other people who are part of that scene. And you want to know what's – because it's a comedy, you want to know what the sort of the game of the scene or the dyna- the comic mm-hmm. dynamic of that scene is so – when you get to set, you know what's going to be funny about that scene. And that's pretty much it. And then uh, at the end of it, you you basically make a production draft where you add props and special effects necessary mm-hmm. and wardrobe and all that stuff. But the simple story was, you know, 55 scenes and I don't know how many pages that is, 12 mm-hmm. perhaps. 
That's it, though. That's, yeah. that's funny. I mean, it sounds really thorough. Well, it is because you do yourself a favor by having a solid, like anything you write. Obviously, if you have a solid story and you believe the connection from the previous scene to the last, and there's hopefully a couple surprises, and hopeful, uh, hopefully you keep the sort of the emotional truth or heart of the movie mm-hmm. uh, clean throughout the movie. You're not compromising it for a laugh. And, and so you have those discussions like, well, he wouldn't really do that. It's funny. But we're going for the joke there, and we got to stick to the story. So you have all the same conversations, hmm. um, and that's—I think—that's pretty much it. Like Curb, Curb, for example, I've auditioned for Curb. I never did Curb, but they basically give you one sentence for the scene. Uh, our scene, our outlines are much more thorough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting having yeah. the emotional through line, which I yeah. think is something even when people are sitting down to write a screenplay, they forget about. Yeah, is you know what happens in the scene, but also what happens emotionally in the scene. Well, I think it's even more important because that's really all you can track in the screenplay. You can have a couple suggested jokes, or right. you can have a concept of like uh, twelve people come into his kitchen and he's and he's in his underwear. Like that's funny, but you also want to know emotionally where he's at. Does he defend himself? Does he try to get a word in and they shut him down? Uh, are they judging him? Does he care about their opinion? All that stuff sort of comes out in the descriptive narration that you create. And that that outline is, I mean, that's that feels like that's the hard part of writing. Yes. Um, yes. Let's talk nuts and bolts for a second. Sure. And I want to get to some of the production stuff. But um, how long did it take you guys to outline? What was your process? How did you work with each other to get the stuff down? Uh, the The... Brian is a friend of mine. We always hang out. Super funny improviser. Great writer. And I like to write with people who are better writers than me, quite frankly. So he is someone who fills those categories. And um, I love the improv uh, movie genre. So we just said, yeah, let's write one. And uh, you can do them fairly cheaply, which is why I'm still looking for money because we have none. (laughs) But uh, we were able to shoot it for a small amount of money. And so we just got together and I pitched him some ideas. And uh, the idea of a hypnotist who can cure everyone but himself, basically comes from, I know a lot of people in LA who go to alternative therapy. Instead of going to see a shrink, they'll go to a a Reiki or a a tarot card reader or a hypnotist. And there's something purely LA about that. And there's also a certain kind of desperation that LA has. There's very unique problems that I think only happen in LA. (laughs) And so it's exploring LA and it's exploring alternative therapy. So that was the world. And uh, the character we kind of talked about based on a few people we had met in our lives. And then so we once we kind of had the character, I think we spent a day or two just talking about the character in the world. Then we sort of attempted to block out who are the other characters, uh, wife, family, any friends. And this guy was kind of isolated because he was so uh, in a bubble of his own guruism that he didn't have any friends, which is a great problem for our story because he befriends someone and that's what. Uh, offers him change. So then once we had the hmm. uh, agents of change, which is mainly this one guy, Hugo, and then a love interest, Lindsay, we sort of tried to funnel them into the story while the world he thought he was on top of is crumbling apart. So the story became, it's a descent right away where you see a guy who thinks he's at top, but when he is honest with himself, he's losing what's valuable. Hmm. So it's sort of that descent. And then how does he rebuild? So I don't know if that's a traditional arc, but that's kind of where we ended up. Mm-hmm. And Are you guys talking about uh, or imagining casting at the time? I mean, presumably you knew Husky would be playing uh, the lead. Yeah, yes and no. Like, there, we didn't know, like, there was a time when I had another guy in mind to play the lead, and then he couldn't do it. And then by the time it came around, it was perfect for Brian because he had 
uh, honestly had just gone through a divorce himself. So it was like perfect. He could tap into that horribleness. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not too dark. Right. Not too dark. But, but, it, but real. But real in a real way. And yeah. it, so it was good fortune, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, we kind of had characters like Horatio I knew would play uh, Hugo. Uh, my wife plays his ex-wife or wife, Morgan. And then we had various characters who um, we knew would play, like Andy Daly plays a neighbor. And we, as we were writing it, later in the writing, we were, as, we, as it became real, and we, we put it on the calendar, like, oh, we're going to film in July mm-hmm. for two weeks. Then we're like, well, what about the neighbor? And like Andy Daly came up. Mm-hmm. So, and they were all, everyone pretty much in the movie is a friend that we both knew. Of and course, it was just yeah. a simple call. And That's would great. You like to, would you and like to? Yeah, I mean, you guys are lucky to be in the middle of this comedy scene. Yes. I mean, you're a UCB founder. All of the... Pretty much all these people owe you. Mm-hmm. Everyone <laughs> owes me. As you guys are putting together this outline, how many how many hours a day did you meet? How many days a week did you meet? I have a little garage that I put some drywall on that I call an office. So we would come to the office, I would say, <clears throat> two or three times a week. And then we would not meet for a month because I work and Brian works and uh, we have children. So you have to hustle. So over the course of a year, um, I went away to Baltimore and we would do a little email writing session. So I think we probably cracked a good first draft in a year. And then I think we passed it off to a couple friends to sort of critique it. And mm-hmm. and we got some good ideas. So we went back to work and then put another three months into it roughly. Wow. What kind of feedback did you get from that first pass? Um, some of our friends were like uh, they wanted it to be more uh, believable and I think the notes that we got affect how it affected our rewrite was to make the family more a part of his journey because he was very he was a very lonesome character. It was very stark, uh, a man who somehow was able to not re- engage with anyone in a real way. He was always in guru mode, and they felt like it's more useful or it might be more useful to see him lose his guard more often or to be uh, broken down uh, earlier in the story. And so those were helpful moments. And then the. He has children, and we kind of wrote a little bit of more, uh, a little bit more about the children and uh, his interactions with them. And then I think the neighbor character also probably got a little more effective because to me, the neighbor represents um, what we should be like in the way that suburbia has this idyllic like you should have kids who go to private schools and you should drive a nice minivan. And there's these unconscious expectations that are placed upon you when you when you get into the adult world. And I think the neighbor. Uh, became that it's like he, Ron carved out this world that like, I'm going to be this guy I'm going to do this but there was also this other world that was saying no you should be this hmm. so it was another route for him to choose and then ultimately that's not fulfilling so then he has to choose like what's really him not the guru not the neighbor mm-hmm. world but what's really him so the neighbor also helped us it's not a red herring but it's a false target mm-hmm. uh, let me ask you you know you've brought up a lot of uh, themes that are present in this film and and you know character elements that are here what was it that spoke to you how is this you know how is this as, as much about you as it is about Brian as it is about you know this fictional creation um well i i one i did see a hypnotist to quit smoking really? so did yes i am one of those guys no it didn't <laughs> i've i've heard it go both ways it does and it does work and actually some of the people who did my movie like Nick Kroll and Natasha mm. Leggero and Ricky Lindholm. Yeah. Uh, they also had gone to hypnotists for uh, things like smoking or a little bit of other things that aren't uh, traditional like hypnotism uh, uh-huh. arena. And uh, and it worked for them. Yeah. So it was funny that, that – so 
it was something that I did do. Um, so I am part of that element of L.A. <laughs> that tries different things to uh, behavior modify. So that was that was one truth. And honestly, I think it's – I'm just sort of greedy to make improv movies. Like I don't – I care about the story and I got to craft it. But ultimately I was just excited about creating scenes that I knew – would be really funny when we got the cast together. Mm-hmm. So it is it is a comedy in a way that like great writers they care about the story but ultimately they want it to be funny. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of what drove it is like how can we get this to another funny scene? What's a funny place to put Ron? Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of it as well. Well, it seems like, and and so much of that, and I know like UCB tends to play both the game of the scene, but also the character interactions yes. and, and the comedy that comes out of that. And it feels like yes. that's kind of where you're finding the joy of these things, is bumping these characters up against each other. Yeah, I think UCB hopefully teaches people to be real. And I think I always enjoy movies that are... Uh, I love absurd comedy too. Like I'm, I admire anything that's super funny and absurd. But I also tend to like grounded movies where you can get away with absurdity. So mm-hmm. um, I love the the tone of it. And I think being a small movie, we just built it to be real and kind of little Lego scenes that were real and real <laughs> and, and no too nothing too huge on top of sure. little bricks. That makes a lot will. of sense. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine, uh, I mean, you are still in post-production, but I would imagine yes. so much of the film, especially a film like this, is found in the editing process. It is. It, in, in some ways, it's akin to making a documentary because sure. you are shooting a ton more footage generally because there is no script. And oftentimes you discover something on set when you're filming that wasn't in the outline that you can actually bring with you and put in the edit. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's even a small, like, D story, if you will, because mm-hmm. if it if it works early on in the filming and you love it, then you just build it into the later scene. So you're constantly doing like little rewrites or remembering things to uh, bring with you. But the, yeah, it the first film I did, the editor was a true documentary mm-hmm. editor, and he sifted through tons of footage, and it really saved me because it's so he valuable. he presented that first cut. I'm like, okay, okay, now I know where I'm at. Okay, mm-hmm. and then this one. My editor, this guy, Jake Gamble, is, is a director by trade, but a great editor as well. And he was also very adept. He had kind of a reality background, too. He did mm-hmm. cut a lot of reality shows. So that's kind of, that's kind of documentary. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of documentary as well. Oh, that's funny. So it is, yeah, there is a lot of documentary to it. Um, and, oh, before I forget, uh, how long is the Indiegogo campaign running? Mm. When does it end? I think we have 26 days left. I want to say April 21st. Okay. So when this comes out, people still have a good three or four weeks. To, yes. Uh, to, yes. To listen to you, you get 40 days, just like uh, Jesus in the desert. <laughs> uh, let me ask you something about the about the campaign, which, again, I know can be so much work. Yeah. Um, you know, you're offering all these rewards. Have you were you prepared for all of the work that has to go into this aspect of it? Like this is it's it's a whole no, other part of production. But it's like anything. It's like once you have a deadline, mm-hmm. it motivates you. Like it's just like if you write a script and you tell your friend, "Okay, we got to have our first. We're giving our first draft to this guy at Warner's by June first. Mm-hmm. Then you then you just do it. So it's one of those things. Like okay, we're doing Indiegogo. We're going to launch Tuesday, March, whatever. All right, what do we got to do? And then it just all comes at you. You're like, okay, all right, yes, no, do that, okay. And then you have idea sessions, and we give we giving uh, we're giving a lot of uh, sort of improv friendly tr- uh, treats to people who donate. Like, yeah, there uh, are cool rewards on there. A we class or two, a lecture, uh, and then your standard, you know, T-shirt, bumper sticker, right. uh, defaced headshot of me by a famous person, hopefully. <laughs> um, 
So trying to have fun with it, but it's a lot of sort of. It's, I think it's catering to an improv interested audience for sure. Yeah, uh, which again, I mean, this, th- these are your people. Yes, that's what I hoped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's what I hope we would reach them. Um, what? Tell me about your relationship to writing. Uh, you know, we obviously we know you as a performer, um, both from UCB uh, on Veep currently. Uh, but you know, you're like you say in the uh, campaign uh, description. You're one of these guys where it's, oh, it's, hey, that guy. I have warm feelings towards him from seeing him all the time. Yes. Um, but what is your relationship to writing? Um, I do write. I write a fair amount. I wouldn't consider myself a great writer. I would say I'm a good writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love collaboration, and I love collaborating with uh, more analytical writers who can uh, assist with structure and vision and uh, understand the process of building that outline and mm-hmm. Uh, the sort of act structure and things like that. I know it intuitively. Like I, I understand you, oh, we should probably be wrapping up, but I, I like having someone uh, with me to do that. And I've written, uh, trained as a sketch writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote sketches in Chicago and I wrote on UCB. We were all writers. Uh, I did a show, the daily show we wrote, I wrote for that. Sure. Uh, you didn't always get your stuff in, but you could write. Yeah. And then, uh, a show called dog bites, man. I was a writer mm-hmm. on that. And then, uh, I've written a couple movies. We made a movie. Uh, Ian and I made a movie, Martin and Orloff, which got made. Mm-hmm. And I've written basically the first outline for that last movie, High Road. And mm-hmm. I have a couple screenplays. I probably have like four screenplays I've written, but I haven't shot. Mm-hmm. So I do write a lot. But yeah. again, I'm a good writer, not a great writer. Have, have writing and I've written probably 10 really good essays I'm proud of that have gotten published in various places. Yeah. Um, have writing and performing and directing for that matter all kind of gone hand in hand for you? Like, are they all pressing the same buttons? I think writing is more analytical. I think it's, it escapes me a bit more like it's more arduous. It's more lonely. Obviously (laughs) these aren't new observations about the profession. Um, and yet, you know, we may hear it every time, but it's always good to hear. (laughs) It's absolutely true. Like I know my friend Katie is a successful screenwriter and she's just so out of her mind because she, she made a movie that got made that was a big hit. And then all of a sudden these people wanted to write and then she realized, oh my God, I'm a full-time writer now. And she's writing by herself in her apartment and she's going bananas. Especially She's she's craving human, yeah, big feature. Yeah. She's very successful. But she's a TV person too, right? She does TV. Okay. Yes, we are. Yeah. She did. She came out of TV, but now. Which is much more collaborative. Yes. And she was craving that. And now she got this huge launch in the movie world, which anybody would want. Of course you pursue but then the reality started to hit her. It's like, oh, my God, it's just me and my stupid computer. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm looking for any excuse to not write. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, there is that aspect to it. where Yeah, so that's what's different. And improv is very collaborative, obviously. You can't really improvise on your own. So I do tend to like things where I can improvise. That's why I, I collaborate. Mm-hmm. I, I write best when I'm collaborating. But I can you know, go away and write a screenplay and then bring someone in and mm-hmm. uh, work with them. I can do that as well. Yeah, tell me a little bit. I mean, you talked about the sort of analytic aspect of whether it's bringing that person in or having to step back and and do that part yourself. But you know, what is the what is the process for you when you do it yourself versus working with someone else? What do you find that other person brings to the table, or what do you find you have to kind of summon when you're doing it on your own? Uh, when you collaborate and bring someone in, the first thing they can do is they can give you ideas when you have a dead end. Like there's always that moment of screenplay like, oh God, this is terrible. I don't know. I've rewritten it. 
And then you have that friend you're writing with that's like, well, what if we do this? Or maybe we don't need this. And then it's like, oh, my God, thank you. Like, so that's the first thing, having a collaborator. Is it just eliminates those dead ends. Inevitably, you can always find a way around what you're stuck with. Um, and also kind of I feel like you're – or me, my process, I'm always – writing with someone anyways, because inevitably you always turn it over to someone. Like you have a friend who's a good writer and you do the same for them. There's this like brotherhood of writers. Like, of course I'll read it and I'll give you notes. And it's so valuable because you know when you're reading something and you think it's great, but you're also nervous because you know it's not great. Because when you give it to someone, they're like, well, this doesn't work or you could probably do this and this is unclear and this is way too long and you might want to restructure this character because he doesn't serve anything. Mm -hmm. And so you are always collaborating in that sense. Like you're always turning it over to someone. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And in an unofficial way. So I value that. Um, and then directing is completely collaborative. Mm -hmm. it's, you're fortunate to have a great cast, and you cast them to type, and that's, as they say, 90% of it. If, mm -hmm. you, if you create a good story and you get the right cast, just kind of put them in there strongest uh, sweet spot if you will and then just kind of manage them and uh make sure that they're in an improv movie you just make sure they're improvising on story because a lot of improv even in movies that you see uh it's you can tell it's improv because it's so off story it's somebody doing a riff on masturbation hmm. or something it's like yeah. really i know you're improvising it's not that amazing it's not helping the story <laughs> but i guess we got to watch it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm i'm in this theater so yeah um, what are what are the ones that have done it successfully? Do you think? What are the ones you look to as improv movies or in, improv movies, and then kind of just you know the comedy that gets you going in general? Well, uh, sure, McKay's great. Like his McKay and Farrell, they they write really crazy, funny movies. Mm -hmm. um, do you know about the the improv on that? Is there a lot of it? I did one movie of theirs, uh, The Step Brothers. I had a small part, right. and but I know Adam from Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and my understanding of what they do is they just Adam will just sit there because he's so brilliantly quick, and will just throw you lines, and they're just constantly writing mm -hmm. jokes. And so once they're in the scene, they have a funny script, obviously. But it's like say this, say that, you know. And so he's constantly feeding them uh, new lines, or they're giving them free takes. Uh, in the in the final scene, they'll right. say, "Okay, we got it. Uh, do a fun take," and inevitably, some of it, not much of it, I would imagine, but some of it ends up in the final cut. Mm -hmm. uh, I like Judd's movies. Uh, not all of them. I'm not a snob, but I like most of his <laughs> movies. Um, Bridesmaids was super funny. That was Paul Feig, but he. I feel like his posse was part of that, mm -hmm. you know. And he's he seems like, and I don't really know his process truly, but he seems someone like who. When you do a table read, I've been at table reads or done table reads from him. He brings like 10 funny writers mm. who are friends that sit in the front room and after the table read, they go away and they have a little writer's meeting. And that's purely collaborative. It's like yeah. you get all the brilliant minds you know and they give you all these like free, wonderful ideas and you choose to take them or not. Yeah. And then he seems to also take input from his cast, you know, be it Seth Rogen or Kristen Wiig or mm -hmm. whoever, Steve Carell. He seems to like, yeah, that's good. Like so – uh, in terms of improv, I think it's being open to the input of the actors uh, once you're on set. Yeah. I think that's really valuable. Uh, I don't know, traditional, like I was a big fan of Peter Sellers. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that he probably was directed by Blake Edwards a lot. And I would imagine he, like Robin Williams, was just kind of a machine. Like once he was in the zone, <laughs> just keep going, keep going. I don't know what, yes, yes, keep, you know. Yeah. There's certain people that have that drive that like, this is magic. We we probably will use this, you know. <laughs> uh, who else do I like? I like 
Well, it's not true comedy, but uh, I love Nebraska. Mm-hmm. It had some really great comic moments, and I also like the tone, the real. It's hmm. kind of flat. Some people didn't like it, but I loved it. So Alexander Payne. I don't know his process. He seems more writer uh, yeah. nitpicky for some reason, but uh, he's someone I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, was Sellers one of these guys who was sort of a springboard to comedy for you? Yeah, he was an entree into it. I used to watch it with my folks. Mm-hmm. My mom's here. She can vouch for that. It was a big She's pe- shaking her head. She never, never well, my dad did it. then. <laughs> my dad did then. Uh, Mark's Brothers was on public, not public, like free TV in yeah. Chicago a lot when I grew up. So I instantly bonded with them. Stooges. And mm-hmm. then as I got older, it was like Python, Kids in the Hall. Uh, those were my like heroes. And at what point did you say this is something I could do? Or even recognize that this is something, you know, that... Profession-wise? Yeah, or or that, like, one, that, you know, these are performers who are doing a job. Or two, like, these are things that are constructed. These are films, and that's a world I'd like to be a part of. That's a great question. Um, I'm very good at this. In a real way, did, when did I think it could be real? Like, there were moments where I got bit by the bug. Like, mm-hmm. I did a high school variety show, and it was amazing to be funny in front of a... group of 500 people. What did you do in that variety show? We did like five sketches, uh, me and my high school buddies, and they were were like parodies. We were probably unconsciously aping uh, Saturday Night Live, Mm -hmm. but making fun of teachers and making fun of commercials. And then I took one acting class in college, which oddly enough, my teacher ended up going to jail for... uh, (laughs) What did he get into going to jail for? He was moving bail bonds illegally between... (laughs) inmates and himself and he was this lovely he dressed like he owned a yacht like he would wear deck oh shoes and God. sweaters tied around the neck and he was this effeminate tall man and then he just disappeared i'm like what happened and then we read in the paper that he he went to jail That's it was crazy it was absolutely like no one saw it coming and then i really got bit by performing again this isn't the career bite but mm-hmm. doing like an improv class uh my first improv class just realizing that you can not have an idea and you get on stage and all of a sudden you're sustaining a comic scene for two or three minutes and people are laughing and Mm. I thought that was like the the crack pipe hit if you will (laughs) and then making a living go ahead I don't want to cut you off well I'm curious in that that early improv experience was Mm -hmm. it something that came easily to you did it feel like a different thing from like the written sketches that you were performing before or any kind of dramatic work you were doing before it was kind of before I hadn't really done a lot of written performing. I mm-hmm. did a, a little bit in high, like I did one variety show and I right. did acting scenes. Right. And then I was in improv. So I hadn't had much experience really doing uh, performing in an organized way. Mm-hmm. But, but even a theater class is a different kind of thing from yes. a purely comic. improvisational thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, certainly comedy. I think comedy is what really appealed to me because in theater sure. class it was very heavy and yeah. I don't know what we were doing. Probably some Czechoslovakian playwright. <laughs> and then he was inking bonds underneath the desk <laughs> right. and then sending them to you a P.O. box at the state prison. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he was forged. It was forgery is what the, the crime was, oh, and it had to do with bail bonds. I love it. Um, <laughs> but it, for me, that class, it was probably my second class where I, I got it. Like, I understood what's good about it or how to execute it. To me, it was just like, it was eye-opening. I don't know what it was. It was maybe I discovered a talent or maybe discovered this art form mm-hmm. that I was so interested in. I was so fat. Like that feeling was something I was chasing. It was literally like a crack hit. It was like, that is amazing. I want to do that again and again and again. Um, And then as far as professionally, right after my 
college years, I moved in with like five guys in a two-bedroom apartment in Chicago. It was like a comedy ghetto. (laughs) And we did a sketch show at a place called The Roxy in Chicago. And I think seeing people at this little club called The Roxy because they had stand-up. People like Judy Tenuta came out of there and Emo Phillips. Hmm. And so it was a respected venue. I think seeing people there making a living and then seeing Second City. I got to see Second City and that was completely enlightening. And that's where the realization is like, oh, you can make a living at this. And these are people that I can touch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It became, Absolutely. they weren't on TV. They weren't like reading in a book or a magazine. It's like, yeah. oh no, that's a guy that youngish <laughs> and he's doing it. And I bet I could do it. And yeah. that, that, Who that it became. some of those guys that you saw? That I grew up on people like, uh, well, at the Roxy it was some stand ups like Jimmy Pardo mm-hmm. and uh, this guy, Tim Reinhardt, Tony Boswell, mm-hmm. and then your Judy, Paul Gilmartin. They were mm-hmm. kind of a little ahead of me. And then at Second City, it was guys like Kevin Crowley. Dave Pasquese. Later on, it was guys like Farley and Tim Meadows. I think I even saw Tim Meadows do a touring company show at my hmm. college, possibly. Wow. And that was that was also like, wow, that's a cool. Th- I'd love to do that job. Hmm. We, I've talked to a lot of writer actors recently. Uh, Andy Daly was here last week, and uh, we talked to much more Clark eloquent. Greg. Much more eloquent. <laughs> well, he was in character, so you know. Oh, he was. No. Oh. <laughs> I assume everything he does is I know, a character. I know. Um, but, you know, a lot of these guys, and I'm always curious about the relationship between acting and writing. You know, they're both this sort of creation process mm-hmm. uh, in different ways. And I feel like improvisation might be a lot closer to the writing process uh, mentally. Yes. Um, True. Can can you describe that at all? Can you talk about? Well, I always say teaching people to improvise is teaching them to write on their feet. Hmm. That's that in a very simple way. That yeah. is the art form, and you are writing because you're sustaining an idea, and then also there's multiple things you're doing. You're looking for edits. You're trying to play it real. Uh, you might have a character. You, you, so you're sifting through all these like computer choices like what's a good yeah. accent what's a good reference like I've, but a ultimately number of people have described it as like that terminator feed yes, in the your screen, head the screen a b c d a b c d yeah, yeah. how can i uh, find a way into this scene what can i bring to this scene mm-hmm. but it is purely it is a writing uh, art form improvisers have to be good right you have to be del close was a teacher who was a legendary teacher in chicago and his um tutelage uh was excellent and he was always like when you took your first improv class, because I kind of graduated from some other programs and went into his, and he was like, you are a professional satirist now. If you really want to be a professional satirist, you have to read the paper, you have to see the movies that are out, you have to read the classic books, you have to inge- you know, indulge yourself in your hobbies, because you have to have all this culture so you'll never be stumped on stage. You have to be an interesting person. You have to have life experience. <laughs> you have to have monologues. And so it was almost like entitlement to be a a self-indulgent 20-year-old, basically. I can read, I can do daring things, I can try different things (laughs) because I can use it on stage. Yeah. But, uh, so that's, that is, so, like a writer, you need this wealth of information to draw from, certainly. Mm -hmm. And then also you can be a writer and study a great period in history and create a great novel because you have the sources. So it doesn't always have to come from you. But improvisers, uh, you can use all that books, your personal life, you know, uh, various experiences. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is it is a pure writing form though, or impro- yeah. improv is. Yeah, truly really interesting. Um, yeah. Let's talk about sketch for a moment, sure. And uh, your experiences in writing sketch and how it's different from long form stuff, and what are the specific joys and challenges of sketch writing? 
Well, sketch, you know right away is going to be funny because you have a funny idea. And if you don't, you don't have a sketch. So that's what's great about sketches. You get excited because you know it's going to be a funny. A movie is a lot more things to string together and worry about. But a sketch <laughs> is its own contained. Like, this is a funny concept. We can play this or this is a funny character. If we put them in this situation, we can play this. Mm-hmm. So that's what's exciting about sketch. And you know there's an ending. Um, and, yeah, and I think a lot of the sketch I wrote came out of doing bits with friends, you know, just riffing improvisationally mm-hmm. at a bar. And there's a funny idea. Oh, we should write that up. And so they weren't those aha moments when you're laying in bed. It's usually an interaction with people. Yeah. And, and also, you hear that a lot from, like, the UCB and Second yes. City stuff is, like, the, the sketch will come out of improvisation. Yes, absolutely true. And also our sketch show in New York – uh, Upright Citizens we had on Comedy Central. First season we had all these sketches that we packed up and moved from Chicago. So mm-hmm. we had a we had a wealth like our first album, if you will, was <laughs> was pretty much done. Yeah. And then second season we were panicked, so we started taping our ASCAT shows, which are our free improv show in yeah. New York, and we would do two every Sunday. And inevitably, one or two concepts would come out of those shows, and then you could divvy them up. Say, I'll try to write that. I'll try to write that. Is that is that good? No, that's not strong enough. That's not really a good game. And so that fueled our second and third seasons. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So sketch, uh, I find sketch easier, obviously, just because of its size. It's, mm-hmm. it's just much easier to write. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. What's, what is tough about it, if if anything? What's tough about sketch? Um, I guess ending it, obviously, watching. That's always the big thing. Yeah. Right? Where is it going and how do we get out of it? Um, Have Did you find tricks to that? Did you find solves to that? Well, inside our sketch show, you could always dovetail into another scene like python just have a random trailing off like a richard link letter fade (laughs) into another scene and you don't have you you dodge the bullet of the ending um or we had things that you could just cut out in the middle because you knew it was going to come back and Mm -hmm. that made it fresh again so we kind of borrowed the one of the formats of improv a herald which is basically three beats of the same scene so we kind of put that into our sketch show structure and that helped eliminate a lot of endings Hmm. Um, so avoiding them is the basically dodging it, but that's what Python did too. Yeah, they just absolutely. dropped the ten thousand pound weight, or they had the Pope come in and talk to the audience or something. Right. Um, but what else is hard about sketch, or what do you learn? I, getting to it right away is something you learn through experience. Like a lot of sketches you see, like the first page is kind of funny jokes, but it's like just get rid of page one, page two, start here. Really, just set it up, boom, you're in. Yeah. Get to it, get to it, get to it, and. I think there's a trick of inevitably you're kind of hammering the same game sometimes or a character has the same game. So you really want to find creative ways to make it seem like it's not going to happen. And then inevitably Mm -hmm. you go back to that same comic game. Mm -hmm. I feel like that uh, getting to it faster is a great lesson for any kind of writing. Absolutely. And you learn that. Just by doing it, and also inside a sketch show, you have 22 minutes or whatever, so you know, oh, we got to cut it. Or if you film it, it's going to get cut anyways. Like, yeah. I think between first and second season, UCB got really good at, like, oh, just lose this page. Because we, hmm. we fell in love with the scenes because they were on stage, and they did get laughs. But it's like, ultimately, you can hit the ground running. You can start in the middle. Yeah. It's also a different thing, making that jump to film. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, what uh what was Comedy Central like back then? What was your scene? I mean, that wasn't that long ago, but it was still sort of a different channel. It was kind of long ago. It was much different channel. They're much more professional now, I feel like. <laughs> back then they had – we were fortunate enough to follow South Park, I think, after their first huh. season. So we had a great lead-in slot. And South Park 
and I think maybe a version of The Daily Show with uh, Liz Winstead maybe mm-hmm. on it, but right before Kilborn was on, hmm. I think. But that was it, really. And then a bunch of stand-up specials with guys like Mark Maron and right. various Colin Quinns probably coming up. <laughs> maybe Louis C.K. was on back then. So it was an immature uh, station. And Strangers with Candy was on, too. Oh, sure. So there was a couple, like, sketch shows, UCB and Strangers, and then South Park were, like, the anchors to their lineups. Mm-hmm. But it was very uh, – they didn't have a – standards department so we could do anything oh, wow. like truthfully like a Kate and then second and third season they got one and we got a few notes about very rarely did we get intervention though there was very little overstructure because it was a small yeah. and it was on cable and you seemed like nobody was watching cable yet mm-hmm. so you got away with more and nobody was managing it so it was kind of like the wild west and we were also the redhead stepchild of the network like south park got all the love and the marketing and but they were we met them they were very nice those two guys mm-hmm. they were very cool uh, well, you guys must have also been a very cheap show to produce. So they Oddly enough, no, because <laughs> we shot it like a movie. We were so ambitious. Every day we'd get in a 15-passenger <laughs> van in Union Square, and we'd drive out to New Jersey, and we'd shoot a sketch in the morning at a coffee shop that was working, a real coffee oh shop, and then God. we'd go to like a junkyard or an abandoned church and shoot the afternoon. And then we'd get in the van and drive through Lincoln Tunnel traffic and get home at 8, 8.30, oh whatever. And then we had just opened our theater, so a lot of us were, like, teaching classes at night or directing a show or two. Wow. So it was nonstop, like, work. That's crazy. crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. Everything was about UCB for, like, I don't know, seven years. Right. Just nonstop. Well, and that's what you can do in your early 20s. Yes. You have that energy. Yeah. You have I no mean, kids, and you can exactly. be self-indulgent, and <laughs> yes. all your friends are in that group. Like, it was literally yeah. all my friends were in UCB. And that's all my, a crazy time. Yeah. It was really crazy. It was really intense. Uh, what finally brought you out to L.A. full-time? I think basically I'd done everything I could do in New York. Yeah. I was probably too old to go out for SNL. And I got a pilot for a show called Dog Bites Man, and so that was an excuse to move out. Mm-hmm. So I did, right after The Daily Show, I did commercials for like two years, and I was so lazy because I could come walk out of my apartment, <laughs> and in two minutes I could audition for seven commercials, and you could book one every two weeks and you could make a substantial living it was so lazy and it wasn't creatively challenging (laughs) right so but it was also at the end of seven years where you've been yeah i think so i deserved a vacation yeah i was a little burnt out yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah um and so was the the sketch show uh were you brought on as a performer as a writer as both is that how it worked which one the uh dog bites man dog bites man was a performer but it was uh a fake news team, much mm-hmm. like Ali G style, this guy Dan Mazur, who created Ali G with Sasha, mm-hmm. uh, sold a concept to NBC at the time. And then later, NBC passed on the pilot and Comedy Central picked it up. Yeah, so I the, vaguely remember the yeah, show. Yeah. Was so it they, more than uh, – how many episodes? We only did nine. We, okay. we shot ten, but the tenth episode, the uh, infamous Ku Klux Klan episode, was <laughs> never epi- uh, edited. Where we went to like the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in western Tennessee and I pretended I was – Oh a news God. reporter asking him crazy questions. That's Frustrating insane. him, making him angry. Well, you had done some daily show stuff, and I assume, you know, the improv background, spending 10 years on improv yes. at that point had prepared you. But how do you prepare for something like that? I have told this before. I, when I was at the daily show, Colbert and Carell were there, and I just started, and they were on their way out. And Colbert is like, oh, yeah, you just get ready to sell your soul. You're going in there to assassinate someone's character. There's no justice. <laughs> Just check your soul at the door. And it was like, okay. Because I was like, man, this is hard. And he goes, yeah, of course it is. You're brutalizing someone's life. So just 
put your check your soul at the door and do it. That's crazy. Yeah. Was it in some ways putting on a character to do that? Yeah, you're putting on a character of a newsman who's like uh, smart, <laughs> that who's really smart, and then obviously just asking dumb, childish questions. But that's basically it. That's, that's basically cool. it. And you're going in with your story, so no matter what they say, mm-hmm. you're going to get them to get that soundbite. You're going to go at it a different way. So you've basically written this thing, and now we just need a shill to say these things. Oh and so that's kind of the character assassination element of it. That's craziness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were, there, were there times, whether it was on Daily Show, whether it was on you know, Dog Bites Man or whatever, that you felt this worked particularly successfully? Yeah, I think ultimately <clears throat> you have to have an appropriate target. Like Sasha obviously is super fearless, and when he goes after like, pious or arrogant or terrible people it's worthwhile so you just have to make sure you're not picking on nice people so Mm -hmm. our show was it was me and andrew savage and zach galifianakis and 80 miles and by the mid of the season because we would travel around the country as this fake news team we were all like i'm tired of being mean to nice people (laughs) and so by the end of the uh season we pushed for more and more just us or Hmm. scenes where we were just the four of us being idiots and then maybe somebody was witnessing it. So we had, we affected some change. We made the show a little friendlier because we were done. There was a moment where there was a uh, character I was interviewing who was probably mentally retarded or whatever. What's the correct term? I don't want to say Retarded. (laughs) 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 Who was mentally retarded. And I was asking him questions and I had an earpiece in and Dan was like saying, do this, do that. Like, and I just said, no, I can't. And I just hmm. walked off set. Like, this is not someone we should be picking on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so it, Interesting. It, that was like a break point for me. Yeah. Like, did that's, that's did that the change right the way you thought about what you wanted to do? In yeah. I'll, I won't forward. do a show like that again. I won't right. do like those immersion, yeah. whatever prank shows, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it basically full is full time. Yeah. I'll do occasionally something that I think is funny for like a two minute bit or something, mm-hmm. but I won't do a sign on for a show. Cause it's, really challenging and but it's great training ultimately because you are like it's uh it's guerrilla theater everyone even the cameramen are in on it and if someone says hey i recognize you from old school or they recognize zach from stand-up and they're like is that him no it's not him or is this guy yeah he's crazy just go with it (laughs) and so everybody's you're like grifters you're like social terrorists you're just going into a town wreaking havoc keeping this persona this alter ego that you have and then you can only drop it when you get in the van but the minute you get out of the van you're like this i played a very arrogant and stupid reporter from tacoma uh i think it was tacoma washington kevin beacon and uh i had my own book of course and i thought i was great and i always talked about my hot tub and my chrysler sebring and i would bring it up in the middle of interviews that's beautifully specific yes yes (laughs) and uh yeah and we went to like we did great stuff though we went to like teen Spring break for with all these t- uh, teenagers or young twenties, and we just had we had a, we had a sausage party where we invited all these like MTV generation kids to a party where it was all dudes and we were just cooking sausage and Miles was run- eighty miles was running it and he's like pretty good sausage party right and they were like this is so people get angry this is terrible this is lame so those were that's fun. pretty great yeah those are fun yeah they're we hit. I don't know. We probably hit 60 to 70% of the time. That's great. Successfully, yeah. Uh, and a good experience overall. It was great education. Like, yeah. again, it was, I learned that I, I don't want to do that show again. But great, fun people. Yeah. Uh, Dan Mazer, lovely man as well. Yeah. So, um, Let's talk, uh, before we wrap up, um, a little about Veep. Sure. Uh, 
every time I put out on this podcast, what show do you want to hear uh, the writers from? They talk about Veep. Oh. Uh, people are crazy for this show, understandably. They like the writing. It's They like the writing. They like the acting. Um, it feels like a very loose show. Uh, can you talk a little about the relationship between the writers and the actors and the script and the performance? Sure, sure. Um, I think the looseness that people are perceiving are because we overwrite and overshoot. Hmm. So the writers deliver like 60-page scripts for a 30-minute wow. – an HBO 30-minute. So it can be yeah. 29, 30 but or something. Still. So it's a true 30. But still, we so they come in way long and then they shoot them way long and then we shoot long scenes. So hmm. a lot of the looseness is because Armando's a great editor. He gets in there and he can cut – and he knows where you can jump and get away with like mm-hmm. timeline irrelevant. You know, you can ignore timeline and things like that. So I think the looseness feel, I think, comes from that. Um, and because we're in our third season, the ensemble's really tight, and so the cameramen are a big part of the comedy. So they shoot it doc style, and they're always there, and they know where the, the takes are. But it's intentionally sloppy, so mm-hmm. it feels so it feels a little unrehearsed. And that performance wise, we're always uh, you know. We sort of own the characters now, but I think the tone Armando always wanted was like not necessarily underplayed, but real. Like, don't mm-hmm. ever mug, don't ever push it. You know, just just say the line, basically. Mm-hmm. And coupled with the uh, loose camera style that makes it seem informal, even though it's tightly rehearsed. Yeah, I think that's why it feels loose. And then the writing process yeah. is very interesting. It's the writers go away and break three or four scripts. We'll get together for a rehearsal three months out of the season. We'll read the scripts and we'll put the scripts down and they're funny, tight, fat, you know, mm-hmm. 70 pages at that point, 65. Uh, and then we'll rehearse and we'll improvise around mm-hmm. scenes that aren't working or Amanda will look for a scene and he'll say, we need a scene here. And then you, at this point you can be like, well, I wouldn't say this or can I pitch an idea of this? What if I did this? Mm-hmm. Great. Love it. So it's very collaborative with the cast in that moment. And then the writers are in the room writing away. And I think in the first season, I think they were looking for listening for Americanisms because inevitably Britishisms end up in the script. And we're like, no, we don't. No, we don't say that. And it's very efficient. Okay, got yeah. it. You know. Um, but now you guys have spent as much time with your characters yes. as they have, and they were listening for the voice of our characters yeah. too. So it was very like theater camp. Like they were in yeah. there learning who we are because the characters all veered, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that they didn't perceive when they wrote the pilot. Um, and then so then we do we'll do that for the first few scripts and then. They'll come with a new draft, and we'll probably get another rehearsal with that draft. And then if the director comes in, we'll rehearse scenes uh, on a Saturday that we're going to shoot Monday, and then we'll sort of like tweak it a little bit, or we'll come, we'll stumble into new bits hmm. in the scene, and then the writers will go away and write that. And then on the day of filming, it's pretty written. It hmm. truly is pretty written. If you're in the room and me, Julia, and Anna are doing a scene, and it's about me getting the name of who she's on the phone with. And then Julia, like, I don't, this doesn't work. And the writer's like, oh, what do you got? Well, they'll pitch her ideas or I'll pitch her ideas. Right. What if we did this? And they're like, oh, well, can we do this? And like, yeah. So then we'll kind of rehearse this slightly new version of that scripted scene mm-hmm. and we'll rehearse it to where we got it and then we'll film it. Oh, interesting. But it's not like first season, I feel like we got a lot of free takes. Like we would, hand, Armando's very efficient. He just yeah. cranks it out. Uh, and then at the end of the first season, uh, inevitably, okay, here's a fun one. Just have fun, but keep it moving. <laughs> and then we would move on. And we don't really get that anymore because the show has expanded. There's more characters. Yeah. We're not just in the West Wing and the Eisenhower anymore. We're traveling to Silicon Valley this year. We're traveling yeah. everywhere. So there's really a bit of a time crunch that I, I personally am aware of. So I don't look for new things to discover. And also, quite frankly, 
The scripts are great. By the time we get to filming them, they're yeah. they're wonderful. Well, it seems you like couldn't they, ask yeah. for a better script. It seems like they found a process. It is. It's that, a unique process. Yeah, that you you know you get to have improvisation. You get to have input yeah. from everyone. It's very collaborative, but you still wind up with this pretty firm script. I mean, oh, probably totally firm script. There. Because ultimately, they have so many jokes that you just want to yeah. not fuck up. Yeah. Quite frankly, because they write these beautiful insults. For example, every <laughs> script has some wonderful. And usually, you're in a doorway leaving, and you come back into. <laughs> throw a spear at someone <laughs> and you don't want to screw those up. So there's no reason to be looking for an improv moment. Right. You know, yeah. you can look for behavioral moments. Always like you can bump into a door, or hold your look at someone, but in terms of text, you don't need it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then one thing we did unique to the show is between second and third season, Armando had a little lunch with each of us. And he's like, what would your character, what would you like your character to do in the third season? Oh, wow. Like, nobody does that on an American show. No. Ever. That's really cool. Ever. There's no wall between approaching, like, the head writer, basically, who is Armando, mm-hmm. and the cast, or the, even the writers in Video Village. It's very collaborative, and they want ideas, and they it's very fluid. You know, ultimately, Armando is, he calls himself a benevolent dictator. Sure. No problem with that. Like, yeah. he does run the show, and he's very smart. Yeah. But Do you remember what came out of that conversation? The one thing I said in a very nonchalant way was, or non, non-specific way, rather, uh-huh. was I would love to have a, a human being in Mike's life because the first season was an imaginary dog and the second <laughs> season was a boat that we never saw. I'd love to see a more concrete example of Mike's life in the embodiment of a human being. And he was already thinking that way. And I won't give oh, any cool. spoilers away, but uh, I he told me what he was planning and then I pitched him an idea on top of his idea. I said, well, if that's happening, can we do this? And he's like, yes. So we kind of created something over lunch that ended up in the season. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so wonderful. No one ever, I've never been on a show where the the writers (laughs) sit you down and go, what would you like your character to do next season? It's a delight. Has this changed how you approach, say working with the actors on this new film? It is. I mean, I've always been collaborative or improv friendly, but I think I've learned more from Veep. You know, I've borrowed things from Veep in terms of like maybe structuring it a little tighter because mm-hmm. Veep is very tightly written ultimately. And yeah, I think I've picked up things on on where to I, – I know when to throw in jokes now. Like there are moments where you can be a writer in Video Village and, and watching a scene just – write something and give it to him like so i'm better at like having jokes in my pocket if you will on set Mm -hmm. um and also i think you just have faith uh you know where the comedy is like you just get more confident like uh we're not being self-indulgent keep going i i trust there's (laughs) something here yeah or when you are being self-indulgent we're guys we're never gonna use this (laughs) this is really funny but we're never gonna use it right so it's you get you gain a little confidence in that way. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, people will be. Uh, I, th- I think people will really dig this movie, and you know, they yeah. should go check. Uh, go sweet. to at Mr. Matt Walsh. Mr. Matt Walsh. Yeah. Uh, find a link to the Indiegogo campaign, yeah. um, and and give so they can finish this damn movie. Yeah, please. Uh, let's finish as we always do by asking: uh, What are you watching on television? What are you getting excited about? What are you, what movies are you excited to talk about? Books, mm. any any entertainments, any written entertainments that you want to talk about? Written entertainments. <laughs> oh, that genre. Yeah. Let's see. What are some of my favorite written <laughs> entertainments? Uh, New Yorker magazine. <laughs> sure. That's one of my favorite New York uh, entertainment. Can you get through one by the time the next one comes? No, I'm buried. You but you know what I pile, do though? Right? I binge read on the plane. Yes. That's when Absolutely. I I bring like five New Yorkers on and just skim and I, yep. and I not. It's like homework, but I love it. That's the only time I can get through a full New Yorker. What section do you skip? 
Uh, all the around town like nonsense <laughs> music. I don't care about classical music. <laughs> Restaurants, I don't care because right, I don't live there. there. Yeah, and they even I'm not a fan of some of the comic pieces. I'm not a snob, but if it's too mm-hmm. clever, in the way that sometimes NPR can be too clever, mm-hmm. like on Saturday morning, I skip over that stuff. I feel like there have been there's been a shift in the comic pieces. And yeah, even like the last five six years. Yeah, that it's all a little cute. Yeah, a little clever. Yeah, there was a good one. Simon Rich wrote, and I can't want to remember what it was, but I, I work with Frank Rich. I'm like, your son wrote a really funny bit in the New York. It was, cool. I think he, I forgot, uh, he did a knock-knock joke, but he took it as a reality and he just continued nice. it on. It was very funny. But, uh, so that's one of my written entertainments. Uh, there's <laughs> a lot of... That's the first time I've phrased it like that. <laughs> and I'm going to do it from now on. Great. We discovered something. Exactly. We improvised. Um, TV? Are you watching television? Do you have time to watch? You have kids. Yeah, I'm, I have like a very. We have three kids, so I have a very traditional like I, I binge watch on Sunday nights. So I'm like HBO heavy mm-hmm. uh, or Sunday night heavy. So loved True Detective. I was on board with the ending. No problem with any of it. Uh, watch some girls. Girls was good. I don't. I haven't seen them all. Girls was fun. I uh, like the the things I was obviously Breaking Bad. I killed all those. Those were amazing. I was on top of that. Uh, Mad Men, one of my favorite shows. Just love that show. So good. Um, I've gotten addicted to uh, The Good Wife. Yeah. Good Wife is great. It's a great... And and I feel like it's not cool to say you like The Mm -hmm. Good Wife. Why do I feel that way? Because it's it's a CBS sitcom or or CBS drama? That's exactly why. And they do 22 a year. Yeah. And And you have this thing like you can't... It's not on HBO. You can't... It's a great show. Yeah. Yeah, it's, they act the hell out of it. They act of the all. hell of it, and it's really well written. It's really well written. Yeah, yeah, I love that show, and I, I learned to love it on like uh, writing Virgin America. Like they have those free TV things, <laughs> so I binged, and I'm like, now I'm hooked. That's great. Yeah. Now you just have to travel so you can watch it. Yes, I just have to get on a plane <laughs> and read New Yorkers and watch Good Life. Exactly. Uh, uh, and and then, is there comedy that people should seek out right now, or maybe they already are, but you want to reiterate? Uh, that's a great question. I'll come up with it in a second. I watch a lot of kids' movies because mm-hmm. we have kids. Lego movie, I highly recommend that so movie. So much fun. So funny. So good. Uh, Muppet movie, really good. Mm-hmm. Solid. Uh, I didn't see Sherman and Peabody, so I can't go to bed for that. Not great. <laughs> the kids thought it was okay. Um, what are the comedies I've been watching? I have to say I'm not watching many comedies right now. I mean, I, I've seen Parks and Rec. That's funny. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I've seen a couple. Those are funny. Uh, what am I but nothing that you, you're making an appointment. I tend to watch Netflix documentaries a lot. I tend to like watch more drama than That's, comedy. I hear that from comedy people, and the opposite from it drama feels people. like work or something. I yeah. don't know what you just want to escape. You just want to like not worry about if it's funny or not because sure. you do that every day. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's I tend to watch more dramatic uh, entertainments, dramatic right. written entertainments. We appreciate it. Yes. Uh, Matt Wallace, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com.